Well, hello and welcome to episode number 353 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. In this week's show, Boeing announced more delays to the 777X program. Southwest are stopping all emotional support animals on board and UFOs are filmed from the flight deck. Matt, cue the X-Files music. And in the military this week, HMS Queen Elizabeth takes over flagship status and the USAF Force wants to add curtains to the toilets on their B-52 bombers. So joining me this week, as always, in the PTUK studios and this week, totally tech problem free, it's <laughs> Matt Smith. Yeah, if only that were the truth. It's been, I'll be honest with you, ladies and gents, it's been a rather challenging week in the studio here this week. We've had some kind of weird power spike that knocked out all of the studio <laughs> lights, took out like two laptops and, and a thing, so it's, and they're all on different ring mains, so I literally have no idea what's caused it, but uh, it was a bit frantic late last night, trying to get everything up and running. I thought at one point we weren't going to be able to get on air, but uh, here we are, that's the main thing. I would that's have brought I would have brought a generator around, Matt, just right. to get things going, trust me. <laughs> Fair I know I know people. Yeah, right, oh, oh, well, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> this week, uh, we're missing Armando. Armando's uh, off. We've given him two weeks' leave, and obviously, because Nev is back, so we couldn't obviously have No, of course, absolutely. Well. The embargo's but, still in place, I see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Armando sends uh, you all his regards. He is busy doing flying somewhere, so hopefully we'll hear from uh, Armando in a few weeks' time when he's back on the show. But joining us, as always this week on the show, it is the connoisseur of not just fine wines, but also fine <laughs> airlines, it's Neville Bounds. Yes, I am back after my absence from last week. We had our three-day sales meeting when, of course, I would normally be in Portland, Oregon uh, for that. But, of course, not being able to fly, we uh, had it virtually instead. So uh, that was all very good. Uh, quite tiring, I have to say, but it was three days' worth of uh, stuff. But it was great and uh, very pleased to be back on the show tonight to see everybody. Good. So, Nev, I take it that you're missing your usual jet set kind of uh, work. Oh, don't. It's mm. awful. I need mm. to commit aviation, I think. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know when I'm going to be back on a plane next at the moment. The last flight was to Gibraltar in November for my birthday, and that was it. So I've no idea uh, when the next flight is going to be. But you've still got your, your gold status with BA, though. Yeah, they very kindly extended it for another two years, so that's very nice of them. But, um, yeah, I've got so many vouchers to use up from cancelled flights for, for work <laughs> and for personal stuff as well. Um, but, yeah, so um, we're just going to have to see how we go. Uh, there's no no guessing at the moment at all. Actually, you, you mentioned uh, Armando, and uh, essentially what he's just done is sent some aviation porn. Um, oh, so there no. you go. Look, this is just fresh off the hot... Hot, pr fresh off the presses. He sent the, he sent the pictures to plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. That's our WhatsApp number. Please feel free to do so during the show if you wish. Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. So yes, yes, he, he he's committing some aviation by the look of it. That looks very nice. Didn't he looks say nice. that he he was on a Gulfstream uh, six fifty or something, a brand new? Yeah, uh, it did look one. super. Yeah, we could fly, yeah, fly, yeah, it did look pretty. There we go. He's looking. He, there we go. Looking very comfortable in in his new little uh, new little craft. And he's wearing his mask. I know. Good isn't that boy. good? Yeah, absolutely. Good boy. There we yes. go. Yeah, it's all right. Enough now. I'm bored. Enough yeah. now. <laughs> so this week on the show we have got a very special guest. 
And uh, for those of you, you might follow him on YouTube, his uh, page on there, KC the Pilot, if you look for him on YouTube, got a great uh, channel on there with some absolutely fantastic videos. Uh, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show for his first time. Uh, KC, welcome onto the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. What a what a great, uh, yeah, what a great show it is uh, to be on. As, as I was saying just before we started, I was uh, just fixated by uh, Captain John Hutchinson's uh, interview that you guys did on, uh, on on the show. It's just absolutely amazing. And to think you've had such legends like that, and now you've got me, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More than welcome. Wow. Uh, who, who do we have to pay? We, I, I, Carlos, I think you're going to have to open up the Patreon for that particular plug, it has to be said. <laughs> But Casey, we've got you on to obviously we're going to have a mm. chat with you in a bit. Looking uh, forward to hearing uh, about all your, your projects shortly. Your yeah, projects and yeah. stuff. Um, but uh, while while we're uh, having the rundown in just a minute with Nev, if you are watching the uh, the live YouTube page, it is worth just uh, looking at uh, Casey the pilot on YouTube. You've got some great videos on actually for people who are learning to fly. You need to check that out. But uh, we're going to mention quickly before we move on to our weekly roundup. Uh, a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Uh, loads of the usual members, family members in there tonight. Just going to a quick run through. Uh, we've got Jenny in Rome, Richard Adams, uh, Sturman's in there, Graham Haley, uh, Lee Davies, uh, Stephen Ivy. Hello to you, Stephen. Captain Jeff's in there. Uh, we've got Nick Codling, uh, Auntie Liz over in uh, Canada. Well, hello to you, Auntie Liz. We've got Jacob Darlington Brown. God knows how early it is in the morning where Jacob is. <laughs> Must be like five o'clock in the morning, isn't it now? Uh, something like that mike williams hello to you we've got pilot pip uh from the plane safety podcast also in there lane street obviously we couldn't have a show without lane street no. in the uh, in the chat room it'd be all a bit uh, too serious without him, it would it? be yeah <laughs> hello to uh, hello to you masha and uh hello to tony s as well uh, alex robinson i don't think we've missed anyone out from the list oh actually time. you must share with everyone Al alex's news Yes, Alex, uh, who's in the chat room at the moment, uh, he's, uh, Alex Robinson has passed his uh, night rating, so I've heard. So a big round of applause oh, and congratulations so. from all the team for, yeah. for that. Yeah, well Bravo. done, Alex, yeah. I, I just, phew, blimey. I mean, I've flown, <laughs> I, I remember one lesson where I flew into cloud uh, with, with Stuart, my instructor, and uh, just flying into, into cloud in the daytime. Was, was scary enough okay scary yeah. enough so yeah but uh, don't forget if you do listen to the show as an audio podcast and you want to join all the family over on the youtube page don't forget to check out us on youtube to search for us on there all the w's.youtube.com forward slash plain talking uk and you can also subscribe to the show and also hit the bell icon uh, which is right next to the subscribe button to be notified when we go live and recording the new episodes like we are now and like we all got the notifications earlier on and you can join us all in the chat room join the conversation and yes join the conversation because trust me the conversation in the chat room is worth it it's really <laughs> worth it but we're going to start uh, the uh, first part of the show with a weekly roundup so we're going to hand things over to neville bounds yeah thanks carlos well the emirates and the etihad uh, are banned from flying to the uk uh, from today uh, the two big uh, golf carriers will temporarily end their uk flights uh, today after the uk government put the uae on their red list after a country is placed on the red list flights originating there cannot land in the uk also getting added to the uh, uk's red list are two countries in africa so from 1300 today uh, entry to the uk is banned from all visitors 
passengers uh, arriving from the UAE, Burundi and Rwanda. Passengers who have been in or transited through these three countries in the last 10 days will not be allowed into the UK. A media statement issued by the UK's De Department for Transport on Thursday said the decision to ban travel from these destinations follows the discovery of a new coronavirus variant first identified in South Africa but may spread to other countries including the UAE, Burundi and Rwanda. And of course this applies to uh, any flight as well so BA just about managed to get their A350 from Dubai into uh, Heathrow with two minutes to spare uh, today. <laughs> Um, for coming from, I say, coming from Dubai, so that was a, that was a, a definitely a, a close call. Uh, but also, hundreds of American flights cancelled as PSA regional fleet is grounded. PSA, uh, PSA Airlines has grounded the majority of its fleet as it works to carry out required nose gear door inspections. PSA is a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines and operates flights under the American Eagle banner. The grounding is related to a maintenance issue with the airline's fleet and the airline currently operates 130 aircraft, all CRJ 700s and 900s. And in a statement to Airline Geeks, the FAA said PSA Airlines removed a number of its Bombardier uh, regional jets from service after discovering a maintenance item that required immediate attention. And the airline voluntarily disclosed the matter to the FAA and the agency is working with the airline to address the situation. Uh, also just coming in tonight, uh, some breaking news from our friend Liz Piper in Canada. She says that all Canadian airlines have today canceled all of their flights to Mexico and the Caribbean until at least April the 30th. So that's, that's another big uh, hit to our industry, sadly. It's all happening tonight. Mm. Oh, blimey. I know, absolutely. And that's the crazy thing. All that stuff came in, like, that's why we've had to do it like that, bef like, after we'd done the show notes last night. So, you know, big stuff, really. But uh, there we go. That's everybody up to date. That's that's what we wanted to do, just keep you, uh, keep you abreast of what's going on. Excellent. So we're going to move on to the next part of the show, and we're going to have a chat with our guest, KC. And uh, just mentioning, actually, Alex Robinson in the chat room has just subscribed to your channel, KC. So uh, that's another subscriber you've got uh, for your channel. That's always <laughs> yeah, a good one. Uh, amazing, Alex. Thank you. Uh, you obviously need some uh, incentive to get to sleep in the evenings. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, no, no, he, they, they don't need that. That's what they have this show for. That's, 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 that's... <laughs> so, KC, we're going to welcome you again onto the show. Thank you for, uh, for coming on this evening and joining us. And uh, so, Casey, uh, for the benefit of the, the listeners who might not uh, know, uh, tell us a bit about uh, who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, great. Thank you for for, for having me on the on the on the show. Uh, I'll give you the short version. Um, so, I uh, studied at University of Manchester. Finished. Uh, studied aerospace engineering. Struggling to get a job. Uh, this is in two thousand eight in the um, heart of the financial crisis in the airline industry just absolute nightmares everywhere um and i realized look if you want to have a graduate job you're gonna have to go somewhere else so thankfully the oil and gas industry was absolutely booming because we, we had 120 dollars a barrel oil price uh so yeah that's um so i ended up there and the initial plan was i'll uh, do it for a little bit and then try and see if i can come back uh, into flying anyway fast forward 12 years later uh, the oil price collapses, my job's at risk, and I'm thinking, Ugh, what are we going to do? Thankfully, I kept my job, but I then progressed my flight training via the modular route, evenings and weekends on a part-time basis. Uh, it took me 12 months, quite an intense period, 
Um, but managed uh, to finish, and within four weeks of finishing, I had uh, three jobs, three job offers: uh, two on the seven three, and now uh, one flying the eight three twenty. So I just thought, good, you're gonna have to make a decision here. You know, you can't, uh, yeah, sit forever. So I just, yeah, that was it. I decided I was, uh, I was gonna come and fly professionally. So boyhood dream. Um, been kind of flying professionally now for about, uh, yeah, just had my second anniversary and absolutely love it. Unfortunately, just like everybody else, as you guys have all said, that the airline industries has been absolutely decimated um, by, uh, by, by COVID-19. And initially, when it all stopped around about sort of end of March, early April time, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do with my, um, with my time? Um, so out of that came How to Become a Pilot in uh, Europe, Pilot Training Guides. It's, it's available on, on Amazon. And um, through that, yeah, I just enjoyed kind of giving the tips and tricks uh, that I used to, to sort of complete my pilot training within 12 months when it would have normally been 18 at a fraction of the cost. Um, I think total spend for me was uh, just over 60K, whereas other schools were quoting 120. So yeah, I just put it all in there, just tried to share the advice. And I thought, great, I need somewhere. Because in the book, you can't put like links and stuff. Uh, so I needed somewhere to support the book. So then I uh, came up with the blog, kcthepilot.com. And initially, it was just there to support the book. But then um, as uh, the second lockdown happened, oh, right, as things slowed down in November, December time, I needed a project. So I picked that back up. We were going, yeah, when I picked it back up in November, I think I was having 500 views a month. Uh, into December, it jumped to 5,000 views a month. Into January, got to 10,000 views. And then just last week, we, yeah, it's, it's over 11,500 views in the last 30 days. So it's, it's just absolutely, um, it's absolutely crazy. And I think there's a, I try to just be honest with how things are. You know, the airline industry is a really tough place to be right now. But um, yeah, you, you, you just you just try and give honest advice. And a lot of people come, you know, message me. Oh, should I? Is it the right time to be a pilot? Is it not? Should I do my training? I just yeah, give my my input and the real experiences if you if you if you if you like. And yeah, that's a, and as a side project, the YouTube channel also came about. So apologies, everyone, if you get to sleep tonight rather earlier than you normally do. So, Casey, you said when you on your first part of the uh, conversation, you said that you had you were given that choice for the uh, 7.3 or the A320, I think you said. Obviously, uh, you're, you're, a, you're a Boeing fan. <laughs> love Boeing. Absolutely love Boeing. <laughs> yeah, well, what's, your, what's your preference, by the way? Boeing, obviously. Good man, good man. There we go. I was, I was about to leave and just close down the call. <laughs> But uh, you, you obviously, uh, you obviously love that the Boeing. I mean, Boeing product itself. I mean, the, the home sim I have here. I fly the seven three seven eight hundred here on the home sim, and, and excellent, very enjoyable. Yeah. But uh, your channel, I was going to say, uh, Casey, your channel on YouTube. You've got some really great videos on there. I think for anyone who is thinking of starting to learn to fly from you know from scratch or has a has an interest in aviation, your videos are very um, well thought and well put together by you uh, you come across your kind of like everyone's ideal instructor I think thank you, you. um yeah. i mean the the, the 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 truth is i'm kind of learning as well as 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 times go and um i guess i just try and share the message 
of what I kind of learned. And the real difference or the big key thing for me is you, you don't have to go out and spend 120 grand on pilot training. You can do it for half the price. And that's what my whole YouTube and the blog is and, and the book is, is, is in fact about just trying to just trying to get that uh, message. It's funny, just go back to what you said about your sim, um, which uh, platform do you use? That's exactly how I started as well. Uh, I, when I was at school, it was Flight Sim 98, which we first had. And I, I didn't have a computer, but my mate did. So I, I think I racked up about 12,000 hours on Flight Sim 98 in my secondary school years when I should have been doing my coursework and, and, and studying and so on. But how wicked, yeah? Yeah, X-Plane 11 is what I use. And then my wife, very kindly for, for Christmas, brought me a, a 737 throttle quadrant unit, um, the actual the actual centre pedestal with the throttle. Oh, amazing! Yeah, which is which is pretty cool. So, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, like like you said, it's a great learning tool. Um, I'm I'm now in the process of trying to. I'm going, you know, starting things from scratch. I'm starting the aircraft up from cold using checklists and trying to do things properly. Brilliant. Um, I mean, I'm never going to be a commercial airline pilot unless I have some kind of six number um, effect at a weekend. But um... to be honest, you have the best of both worlds. You don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and do a walk around uh, in horizontal rain. So you're winning, to be honest. No, Nev, you've got uh, some questions, haven't you, on the uh, the sort of how you, how we got started, Nev? Yes, also a couple of questions in the uh, the chat room, actually, which we'll just uh, go through. Uh, from uh, Alex uh, Robinson, uh, Casey, uh, where did you do your CPL, ME and IR? And uh, what tips and tricks do you have for picking a school as a part-time learner? That's, a, that's an excellent, that's a fantastic le le uh, question, um, Alex. So CPL... I'll just rewind a little bit. I was working in the oil and gas industry at the time, and I was in this place where I couldn't afford to stop flight training, uh, sorry, to stop work and just go do flight training full time because you get to a certain stage in life, you've got your mortgage, you've got your house, you've got your bills and blah, blah, blah. So it, for me to, for it to work for me, it had to be around, um, around the job. So I had to find flying school uh, that would do professional flight training around the weekend, which is an absolute nightmare uh, to do in the in the UK. Um, and at the time, it was also at that point where all the flying instructors were being poached by the airlines because they were so short of pilots. So you'd find an instructor, and then within a couple of months, they're off to airline X, Y, and Z. Um, but any, in any case, for CPL, I was really lucky. Um, There's a flying school in Blackpool uh, called West Air. Uh, they opened up... Um, They've always done PPL, but they opened up to do CPL training as well. And I was really lucky because the instructor, uh, Stuart, had absolutely phenomenal, uh, so knowledgeable, so experienced. He, he was willing to come in every Sunday for me. Uh, so, yeah, I did my CPL course. I think I started in sort of late February and I finished. I did my skills test early June. So, yeah, around about three, three and a half, four months, something like that. Um, and for the I, for the multi-engine instrument racing, unfortunately, the schools now closed down. It was in with PTT in Leeds and uh, I found an instructor who was really kindly uh, offered to come in on a Saturday and I'll go to Leeds every Saturday and I'll go to Blackpool every Sunday and kind of progress uh, the CPL and uh, multi-engine instrument rating um, yeah around the job it was okay but I think at the end because of the intensity of the flying particularly as you come towards your instrument rating um, you, you've got to be flying every two to three days any more than that you start to notice it just because of the precision level that is needed to get through your your instrument rating it's not impossible you just have to be practiced and be almost hyper current where you you you're feeling things and you yeah you 
you're adjusting stuff by noise and, and stuff. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, anybody who passes a multi-engine instrument rating, single pilot, I, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a pinnacle of flying. You'll never ever get to again in your, in, in your life. Um, and I think the other, the other part of the question was, um, uh, and what tips do you have for picking a school as a part-time learner? So that's really, really important. I think the first point that I would make is, depending on what level of, uh, of, of instruction you are, or flight training you're looking for, if it's for, for PPL, then there's a, in the blog and the book, I mentioned that there's a couple of things which are really important. The first one is get down to a trial flight and get a feel for the, for the flying school. Um, if you turn up to the flying school and you're sat around in reception for 40 minutes being ignored, You've probably got your answer there that it's time to go look elsewhere um see what it feels like and then the next one you you want to look at airfield elevation so the higher the airfield typically the worse the weather is so i'll give you an example a blackpool i never had a scrub day because of bad weather at leeds i probably lost half of my lessons because leeds six 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 hundred and fifty feet uh above mean sea level so the weather is just going to be a bit more um aggressive the other one you looking at between grass and tarmac some grass fields in the winters can have issues it's not it's not the end all and be all um but when i was doing my ppl for example in the north of england i i suffered a couple of months delay uh, because it was frozen over and so on so look at all those things look at where's close to home as well and then kind of decide um decide from there that's if you like for private pilot level if you're going further ahead and you're looking at commercial or your professional pilot training commercial pilot license multi-engine instrument rating then um you i appreciate it is COVID 19 and there's not that many jobs out there in terms of the airline but let's say we fast forward 18 24 36 months whatever the timeline is and there's recruitment happening again you want to have a focus on where the graduates or the the students from that school are ending up so as an example my instrument rating instructor he told me when I started my instrument rating, he said, every single one of my students are now flying a jet. Uh, it wasn't the, the biggest school. It wasn't the most expensive school. But I thought, well, if I if I get taught by a guy who's, who's, who's every student is now flying jets, through a range of probabilities, there should be a good chance that I end up there. So I think that's quite important. And then the other thing you want to figure out uh, the environment that works best for you. So if you're doing it part time, you need to make sure you've got instruction on the days that you're that you're off or uh, will, the instructor will be available uh, and so on. There's no like perfect flying school. They're all good in their own respects. The key comes to finding the one that matches your unique set of circumstances to suit what you what you need. That was a really long answer. Is everyone still there? They will check out. Yeah, we're all still there. Yeah, loving it. It's all good. No, it's all good. Uh, just out, just out of sort of curiosity, really. I mean, what? what yeah, you, you're mentioning obviously, you know, sort of what brought you to to aviation i mean had you always had a passion for aviation like growing up and things i mean were you like the rest of us where you had posters of aircraft and pictures of the red arrows and all that sort of thing on your wall well it's a it's a funny one that you say it's a great point um when i was at uh, i i grew as a youngster i grew up in in west africa uh and i loved we lived really close to the airport and at the time um there was Ghana Airways and they flew dc-10s and every time uh you know there was a departure you'd sort of you know dive out look out the window and try and see what it what it was uh and that just got to me uh and but I just never had access to the to the aircraft other than just looking out the window. It's only when I started um, secondary school, uh, and I was immensely lucky that the that the school had a cadet section, 
um, that we were able to go for air experience flights. And that was in fact, my first real induction into, into aviation. And uh, I, was, I, was, um, I did a, a YouTube uh, interview with Pilot Studies. He's a phenomenal flight simmer uh, just yesterday. And um, we were just talking about the opportunities that the air cadets give. So if there's any viewers or younger viewers listening and watching, you know, pilot training is extremely expensive and you can get so far ahead by just getting involved in the air cadets and just using up all the free stuff. I think through air cadets, I've managed to get about 15 hours towards my private pilot, my PPL, basically just through the air cadets, all completely free. On top of that, I'd done gliding courses and I'd started my training to become a gliding instructor, all completely free through the air cadets. So yeah, it, it just gives you such a massive head start, um, particularly if you if aviation is your ambition. And if you want to join the military and fly for the military, then if you do well in the air cadets, the chances are you'll probably do uh, end up doing well in, uh, in, in whichever service you choose. So, I, I mean, you, you touched on the cost there, actually, and Lee Davies in the chat room is sort of asking uh, the, the question. And it's, I guess it's one of these loaded questions, but uh, he's actually saying uh, for, <laughs> for younger people, um, you know, any idea of like a ballpark figure of, of, you know, what people really need to have access to in order to you know, achieve where, where you've got? Yeah, so to go all the way through, I think you need a minimum of about 60, 60K. But don't let that number kind of like freak you out and just give up straight away because you think, oh, it's completely unachievable. Um, I'll bore you with a bit more of my story. So got 15 hours free with the air cadets and then went into university um, and I flew gliders at university um, with the university gliding club. A lot of it was heavily subsidized. And I remember we went away uh, for an Easter trip, a gliding week, all paid for, food, drink, flying, everything. We flew as much as we could and it cost 30 quid for the week um, of, of, a, of intense gliding. There's no way you'd ever get 30 quid a week of gliding outside of the, the university environment. And then towards the end of uni, um, the, I applied for the Honorable Company of Air Pilots PPL scholarship. They're actually open, by the way. So if anyone is looking for private pilot license scholarship, gliding pilot uh, glider, gliding scholarship or flight instructor scholarship, uh, check out the Honorable Company of Air Pilots. I think there's maybe a couple of days left before they, they shut. This is for scholarships later on this year. I applied for one of those and got one of those. So straight away, I got to like advanced PPL and basically hadn't spent any money. Um, and then once you then, you know, start looking at work and hour building slowly, it took me from PPL to getting into the 7.3 right and see, oh, sorry, it took me from my first flight at 14 to getting in the right hand seat seven, three, 20 years. So it's not like, oh, it was just a switch where you flick it and it goes, <laughs> it's like a, it's almost like an apprenticeship of just this meandering journey of ape airplanes. And then suddenly, bam, you're, you're there, you're on the runway and um, you're about to press the toga switches and start the takeoff thrust for the first time. You're thinking, this is nuts. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I hope that that maybe answers it. But the key thing is don't just, just chip at, chip away at it and eventually you'll get there. The great thing of modular is you can do it in kind of like pieces, which is what I really push on the blog and in the book. It's not the only way, but it, it, you can, it's a much higher chance of doing it. And also um, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is um, even after you finish your training in a, in a normal environment, pilot jobs are extremely competitive at the bottom end, at the low end for lower pilots. Um, so hazard a guess, you're probably, I'd say for it, in, in the normal times, assuming no pandemic, I'd probably say, you know, there's somewhere between probably a thousand people for every job that's that's going. 
Um, it's not impossible to get the jobs, but you just got to press, oh, sorry, prepare in a particular way. And that's when it becomes all the more important to have employment after you finish your flight training in whatever you're doing, uh, be it plumber, builder, engineer, whatever it is that you're doing, nurse, doctor, um, because you're going to need to keep your license current. Um, you're going to need to play for sim sessions and so on to improve your chances of getting a job. So I, I think the, I'm, I'm a big fan of the part-time route and doing something else, it de-risks it. And it also makes it more achievable and more affordable um, in, in, in that sense, yeah. So just, I mean, out of in, oh, I say, just out of interest, uh, Casey, what, what aircraft did you do or most of your PPL training in? Uh, most PPL was in the Tomahawk. Um, oh, I, wow. I, I just, yeah, I, I just come out of um, the gliding world. And um, at the time, the instructor was really nervous about spinning the aircraft. Whereas, like in the gliding training, it's spinning is yeah you do it all the time for each of your bra for you know when you go so before you go solo you have to do some spinning um, regularly you do spinning when you come to your bronze you do spinning when you come to silver you do spinning uh, they're spinning all the time so to suddenly get into if you like the power world and they're really nervous about spinning and stalling I think it's yeah it was it was it was interesting to me and a lot of people are like wow but I thought the Tomahawk was a great little airplane um, yeah good fun and lots of visibility because the um, the way the doors open you've got the the, the, the glass around you. I'd, I'd soloed in a 150, Cessna 150. Mm. So you, you're quite restricted then, particularly if it doesn't have the panels overhead. But yeah, so Tomahawk, brilliant aircraft. That was good fun. Enjoyed it. Oh, excellent. Nev, you've got uh, some. Yeah, I was just, uh, the number of people I've spoken to over the years that have said, you, you've got to be with the right instructor. You know, the, the, it's the, one of the most important things. And uh, Mike Williams asks, he says, not every instructor works for every student. Have you got any tips for someone who has to fire an instructor? <laughs> so um, I did a blog post on on this. Um, I'm just trying to remember what the why we got onto this. Um, why we got onto this topic? Yeah, the, I did a blog post like the ten biggest problem or the ten mistakes to avoid during flight training, and one of those is the 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 student instructor conflict. So you've got different ways of 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 kind of approaching it, and you, you just have to assess and kind of decide what the what your long-term objective and ambition is. So the first one, you get with an instructor that you don't like. Um, if it's a particular behavior, I think one of the best ways of dealing with it is not to be personal, but just focus and just say, look, um, thank you for the feedback, but I just didn't like how you were uh, shouting at me to flare or something like that. <laughs> the instructor probably thought you were going to kill them or something like that. But a lot of the time, the instructors don't know that the behavior is upsetting. So I'd say that's the first stage, let them know. And if that doesn't cause any doesn't give you the improvement then you can talk to the flying school um management and just say if, if possible um you know we've tried everything but we just clash we can't we can't do that um and then the final one is just go just go and learn to fly somewhere else i would put a little asterisk on, on everything that i've said um most instructors come in try their best for the students in fact I've, I've i haven't come across any instructor that deliberately goes out to give a, a a student a hard time and sometimes it's worth the student just also reflecting on themselves and just saying well is it the instructor or is it me um because if you get a student that every instructor saying on oh, that person's a nightmare to fly with then it might be something that that uh, that you're doing and the final one and this is the key for you know, the, the guys and girls who are watching this who have maybe ambitions of going to work uh, in a larger outfit is you won't always have the choice of who you fly with. So you've kind of just sometimes got to accept that there's going to be different styles. You're the junior party. I mean, you can't 
you know, this captain walks onto the aircraft. You can't say, oh, I don't want to fly with that captain. I want to fly with somebody else. You, you'll be out of a job straight away. <laughs> so you, you, you have to be able to mold and work to the, to the different personalities. Um, and that's probably, I would say, one of the hardest jobs as a, as a first officer. Um, in, Europe, in Western Europe, we're very lucky because the, the um, uh, uh, crew resource management is very good and not too many cultural differences. But I think elsewhere where there, maybe there's a bit of a gradient, that can be one of the challenges that you need to work to. Yeah, that's, uh, in a nutshell, I think that's a, that's a big one yeah, to, to look out for. And a question from Andrew Hall in the chat room. Oh, uh, now, Andrew. now, Andrew is the one responsible for this. So this, this is why poor Casey is on the show in the first place, is because Andrew reached out to us. <laughs> so Andrew ran the cadet section when I was at school. So he's an absolute legend. Oh, get that. Yeah. I know. Yeah, he, he says, uh, where did you do your gliding, RAF, Syston or Portnoke? Uh, gliding with the cadets, it was initially, it was an both for the gliding scholarship and then did uh is it watersham i'm not sure if it's still open um in yeah yeah rf watersham is yeah uh, it's the apache base uh, not far from where we are here cool well uh yeah there's a there's a there was a vgs school there at the time um and yeah i did my um uh the the next bit on after the gliding scholarship they, i think they call it the agt the advanced gliding training course uh and then through the uni it was various airfields in the in the northwest of um, of, uh, of of england because i was at uni in manchester so yeah it's um, a, a little bit of a mixture never got the chance to go up to port moke but i hear the wave in port moke is absolutely um is, is amazing and a lot of people set rec record flights for various badges and and, and stuff so yeah that's uh, that's uh, that's quite cool so as Stephen H in the chat room is making a couple of suggestions here. Uh, so we, as I say, we've had a few suggestions about, you know, ways in which one can, um, you know, get rid of their uh, their instructor. I mean, Stephen H has suggested perhaps do it by text. I think we need some time away. It's not you, it's me is one of the options that they've given. And as you can always rely on with uh, Pilot Pip, uh, basically just says, you know, uh, be a man, just stop calling them, which is lovely. I do, I do, I do appreciate that approach. Thanks, Pip, as always. And a nice comment comment from Nick Codling in the chat room. Actually, Nick yeah, says, absolutely. "What a brilliant guest!" Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Definitely, and Lee, David, everybody's agreeing. Oh. So that's fantastic. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, right, okay. So, any other questions that we need to sort of get to get out there? I mean, it's um, I mean, the blog uh, side of things obviously is uh, must. I mean, as you say, is it sort of more as a resource really for uh, people to to refer back to? So initially, it started off as a place where I could put links for my book. Uh, so I, I, it was caseythepilot.com forward slash blog. And I'll go on there, and like in chapter 12, I'd have been like, oh, if you're doing an airline assessment, uh, you want to click on this website because that's the one I use, blah, blah, blah. But now I've started, um, yeah, I think with, there's something like probably 50,000 words of just uh, across all the topics, um, starting from your uh, trial flights, how to how to do your flight training, PPL, CPL, multi-engine instrument rating, uh, ATPL exams, and so on. And it's growing. I, I've, I've been. Um, it's been one of the best things about being furloughed, uh, if I can say such a thing, is I've just been able to concentrate flat out on the on the blog. And through that, it's just been absolutely amazing. You know, I thought, wow, to go from literally nobody going onto the blog to now, you know, having close to well, over 11,000 views and 3,000 individual visitors come on. It's just absolutely amazing. And there's definitely, I think, a, a definite shortage of uh, flight training advice. And this is one of the things that I couldn't find when I was doing my flight training is I knew pilots. Um, I knew 
where I could go and find the information, but I could never link the two together. And that's what I try to do on the blog. So people connect through Instagram, through my Facebook, and we just, they basically just ask questions and I just try and answer them and just try and give the, the honest advice. Cause it's, a, it's an absolute minefield to try and figure out by yourself and, uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, decide on, on what to go with. So yeah, if, if everyone's, um, struggling on showcasingthepilot.com and then from there yeah you'll have access to to to, to everything nev yeah just think about the uh, the 73 um kc what's sure. the the best and worst approaches would you say that you've uh, had on that aircraft so far? brilliant um i'm just having a little thing in terms of the best uh it's uh, i think you know, first of all, flight safety is super, super important. And uh, the airline environment is quite rightly so very safety oriented. So we don't do anything that compromises on safety. And we're always trying to enhance on it. But when conditions allow, um, and there is a benefit, and there's no compromise on the safety, then we can fly a visual approach, basically. And I think, um, as a pilot, of course, you you know, at any point you want to just take the automation off and, and do as much flying as yourself. But getting to fly visual uh, approach, um, particularly uh, into where's been my favorite, like into roads, for example, it's beautiful as you come off the, the over the sea. Um, I'm just trying to think of which direction they're on. I can't remember the runway numbers. Uh, you can see the airport ahead of you. You get the clear, you, you get cleared to fly the visual approach. And then, yeah, it's, it's just brilliant. And then, you, you know, uh, a, a six mile final, Puppies, two whites, two reds, click, click, and off you go. It's, it's, yeah, that's, that's super rewarding. Um, one of the toughest, um, for, you know, as I, I go back to the fact that safety is always the most important thing and we never compromise on that. Um, it's when the weather's challenging. So I think we had some, some days where, um, particularly earlier on, uh, last year where we had Storm Dennis and Storm Sierra uh, and days like that, then, then it becomes quite, quite hard work um, to, yeah, it's, it's, it's nothing unsafe, but we, we, we certainly earn our wages there. I know very often people say, oh, pilots have nothing to do. They just get in the aircraft and uh, press the Malaga button and the, um, the aircraft uh, takes you to Malaga. But yeah, on the days when the weather's not great, yeah, we, we certainly have to earn our wages uh, that day. So I'd say uh, bad weather days when the approaches can be thinking yeah why am i pilot again <laughs> <laughs> i mean stick, sticking on that theme actually casey what what's um same sort of thing really i mean what's the most favorite airport that you've ever flown into uh, you know there, there must be some locations where you just think oh yeah this is really nice to to come here i mean I, I know i know your background is like low cost so you don't low cost uh airlines sorry so you don't perhaps have the the uh, the overnights you know the, the layovers like a, a lot of the other pilots do but there, there must be like what's your best air, airport to land in and like the one where if you see it on your roster you just go oh yeah going there again um so the the best one i'd say like um going into rome uh, as you overfly the city unfortunately for us out of the front we don't get to enjoy the views because that's like the most intense phase but cracking views if you're a passenger um going over the vatican and stuff um and then also uh the Greek islands, so Corfu is, is, is a brilliant one, uh, particularly if they are on the easterly runway, because the approach basically has you. There's some high ground on the extended set line of the, of the runway, and uh, it's an offset approach. So you um, basically offset to the runway, and then you get to a certain point, and then you turn onto, onto finals. And that's, uh, that's a, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's really pretty, particularly a sunset 
even though we're very focused, um, yeah, you, you're looking outside and you're thinking, gosh, what, what an amazing uh, uh, experience and, 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 and what a, uh, a great thing to do. Other interest, wh- where are your favourite destinations to fly into? Uh, well, I don't fly, so uh, I, I, my idea well, of getting I, I, on I, aircraft just is... just as a passenger, yeah. <laughs> my idea of getting on an aircraft is my idea of hell. So the other two might be able to answer that for you. I think Carlos, Ned... I, I, reckon, I reckon Carlos is going to say Malta because he's obsessed by Malta. Yeah, Lima, Mike, Mike, Lima. <laughs> uh, that's that's, that's going to be every time. Um, Walter, yeah, it's it's and, it's uh, cool. Um, yeah, Gibraltar for me, definitely. Um, never so. flown into Gibraltar, but uh, I, I hear it gets interesting when the wind picks up. Yeah, although <laughs> I think now that it's it's a lot easier than than it used to be. The the uh, you know approach aids are, are much better than they used to be. But uh, yeah, there, there's uh, uh, you can quite easily end up at Malaga. Uh, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> in a strong wind. Uh, actually, we've got a couple more questions in the chat room. Uh, if uh, Carlos, you want to take those. Yeah, uh, we've got one from Tony S. Uh, for you, Casey. Tony's asking, uh, do you think pilots with previous gliding experience make them better all-round pilots? Great question uh, and, uh, and comment, um, Tony. Um, I would love to say, yeah, absolutely. If you've flown gliders like myself, you you instantly as qualified as uh, uh, RAF Red One. No, but that's not true. Um, <laughs> truthfully, I think... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the truth is, I think that the skills to be able to fly gliders successfully gives you all the right ingredients. So you've got to be really smooth in the controls. Uh, you've got to have a good understanding of the weather. You've got to feel what the aircraft is 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 doing, and all that will will, will only help you. If you if you're smooth at the controls, and when you come to do your multi-engine instrument rating and stuff like that, it's it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's one less thing to to have to think about. But yeah, the just how how like. Uh, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? How sensitive with the glider you have to be and how sort of in tune with it. I think if you fly glider as well, then definitely. And I think, you, you know, flying gliders is actually harder, I think, than flying a powered airplane because you don't have an engine. Um, and, and I remember going off my first uh, cross-country flight in a wooden glider, a K8, and you can't go into wind. You're basically working so hard to find your thermal and at the same time navigate and at the same time sort your radio out. And then you get a bit lower and then find another thermal and go on. So it's, it's an absolutely amazing skill uh, to be able to fly gliders. And absolutely, will, it will help you in the end. And that's not to say if you don't fly gliders, you'll be a useless pilot. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those. Nev, we've got uh, loads more uh, questions in the chat room, haven't we? Uh, yes, uh, I noticed an early one actually from uh, Pip uh, who asked um, what um, uh, when you were at university, what um, subjects did you study and have they been useful for you uh, in your flying career? Yeah, great, uh, great question. So at university, I studied aerospace engineering. Um, why did I pick aerospace? I always wanted to fly. I was really lazy during my A-levels and my mum was like, have you picked what you're going to do at uni? And I hadn't, and I left it to the last minute. She came in cross at me. She was like, right, what have you picked? And on the spot, I went on the UCAS website, A, and then very quickly came aerospace engineering. <laughs> I did the maths quickly, and I was like, well, that's aeroplanes, and maths doesn't send me to sleep, so that works. So I was like, yeah, aerospace engineering, click. And then that was that. Uh, and it was it was a really technical course, uh, heavily technical. Uh, you, you do a lot of optimization, a lot of maths and all those uh, type of things. And I think what really carried me through was the love of aviation and the love of airplanes. So it 
kind of put it all into context like they'll ask you oh what's the what's the bending moment going to be on this a380 wing at maximum takeoff weight and da 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 da, da. and for most it will be dry but i'm like oh cool it's an a380 guys let's let's uh let's 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 go and do this and do that um did it help me you don't need a degree to become an airline pilot. You don't. I think where it helps me the most is just the ability to take in information quickly um, to maybe more so from the job rather than engineering, well, rather than from the degree, but making, having to deal with problems with sometimes conflicting priorities. Um, so let's say in the sim, you have got multiple failures happening at the same time. This is purely in the simulator, not in real life. And you've then got to prioritize what, what, what you deal with, what's, what, what's the most important thing and go from there. So yeah, it's, um, it's more just from the general life skills as opposed to, right, you studied and uh, in second year university, they taught you about thermodynamics and how you use that in the job now, absolutely not. Casey, um... Obviously, from a, from a passenger point of view, and obviously with Nev, flies quite a lot for business as well, or did do until this thing happened. But anyway, um, do you think it's important from a pilot's perspective, obviously you're at the front there, for us in the back to have really good PAs to kind of, because we, we're in, I mean, as passengers and aviation geeks, we're interested in what's going on outside rather than what's going on in the IFE or whatever in front of us. But do, sure. you, think as, do you think as a pilot, it's good to have a kind of, good PA to explain things because some airlines do some airlines don't bother as we know yes that's true I think it's 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 a tricky one because um I mean if it was me and just left to me I'll tell you everything because I love everything and I want to talk about everything <laughs> that I do but my girlfriend's mum, for example is a really nervous flyer and she does not want to know she just wants to get there uh with the minimum amount of input so I think when you've got the general public you've kind of almost got to um, uh, present the information at a way that's not lying to anybody, but you also don't want to unsettle anybody who's nervous of um, of, 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 of of flying, you know. Um, and I think the whole the, the whole airline environment is tailored to try and make the experience as comfortable as possible for everybody. And I think that's that's a good thing at the end of the day because I couldn't think of anything worse than like stressing, uh, you know, my girlfriend's mum even more because you know i'm explaining things that she just doesn't want to know about. <laughs> so yeah i suppose that, that's the thing isn't it especially as you know I, i'm uh well known for being a, a nervous passenger and sometimes as you, I, I don't know i suppose it's finding that balance isn't it where the passenger is informed enough that they're not worried about what's occurring but at the exactly. same time furnishing something because sometimes if you do get like information overload that can be enough to to sort of you know freak you out more yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, there's a, there's a funny, um, uh, documentary I, I watched. It was an ITV. I think it was inside the cockpit and they had this, um, uh, yeah, I don't think it was supposed day. to be funny, but I think a lot of our listeners certainly found it quite amusing. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, um, and, and it was time for the first officer to do his PA, and he got the weather. And uh, for the pilots, and the captain says, right, can you do a PA that everyone's going to understand in the back? I don't want you to be like, right, we're at flight level 370, Mach 0.78, on a radar heading 270 degrees, and uh, we're going to be starting our descent in point in two. Yeah, and, and I guess it's like translating the information into a way that's meaningful for 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 everybody else out of interest what what's your preferences on the pa guys do, do, do you prefer more information or less information more. or more 
More, oh, we yeah, can't it's... get enough of PA, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but that I do real, I realise that I uh, accept that is not everybody's cup of tea. But, tea. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, some, I, I'm certainly uh, in other countries that I've flown as, as a passenger. I, th there's been hardly any PA at all, um, just perhaps when we got to the top of the descent, and, and that was it. Um, but uh, no, I think certainly flying in and around the European regions, uh, you, you do get some pretty reasonable PAs for the most part, I would say, for most people. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I've got another question for you. Uh, that's from uh, Mike uh, sorry, it was from, from uh, Alex again. Um, uh, he says he's just finished his ATPL. Um, which skills and or knowledge from the theory do you use the most during your day job? Great. Uh, Alex, first of all, um, congrats on getting through the ATPLs. I think they were definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to do in all my life. And uh, what a slog. So, yeah, good effort on 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 uh, on getting through. Um, the ATPLs is a tough one. Um, some of it, are, like, for example, the stuff that in, I, I found was most helpful was met, met, met uh, is really good. Um, performance, uh, you use the performance every day as we're calculating our figures. And I think the way they go through it in the ATPLs is, is quite a good thing. Um, what else do, is quite useful? Mass and balance as well from the ATPLs uh, is, is used. Um, in terms of, like, skills that you're, you're, you're after, so you've, Sorry, Alex, I'll bore you a little bit with this now. Um, you've got the eight IKO pilot competencies. I'll try and lot of them off, but I'll probably get them wrong. So the first one is um, um, uh, flight path control, manual flight, flight path control, automatic, uh, problem solving, leadership, teamwork, decision making, uh, organization, prioritization, working to procedures, all that sort of thing. So all that sort of thing just then becomes really important. If you just Google the, the eight sort of competencies that they're after, that's, that's basically the main one. And I think when you come to an assessment, uh, hopefully things pick up in, in, in eventually, um, they will basically, your assessor will have a score sheet and they'll be scoring you on each of those competencies. Um, and what's really cool is you can develop a lot of them outside of the flight deck. You don't necessarily have to, you know, you don't necessarily learn them all on your commercial pilot's license course. Now, it's just all the stuff that you do in a part-time job, schools, hobby, extracurricular activities, uh, or through working, uh, and so on. So, yeah, that's, um, I think that's a, that's a, that's one. Do, do you know what I think is amazing? I think we're getting some great questions tonight. Thank you so much to everybody who's, who's sending uh, the, 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 the questions in. Uh, great audience you have. Thank That's you. very nice. Thanks very much indeed, Casey. Well, the, the final question is from uh, Captain Nick. Uh, oh, Nick, no. Oh, <laughs> I'm scared the already. What's that your trainer ever did to you in the simulator? What's the nastiest trick that your trainer ever did to you <laughs> in the simulator? I'm having a think of this. Um, do you know, Nick, uh, or Captain Nick, shall I say, um, it's actually because all the training has to be standardised uh, in the environment, um, because it's all regulated, um, there isn't really any opportunity for, if you like, nasties, uh, tricks happening. Um, and I, I never really had a, a situation where, you know, they, they catch you out. I think, um, so pilot, pilots have to do uh, six monthly simulator checks and it causes a lot of anguish and a lot of angst, but I've I haven't come across yet a, a sim check that's tr deliberately tried to catch you out. I think um, a lot of the time, what 
does cause people issues is maybe they have uh, made a mistake or something like that. So then they end up putting themselves into a little bit of a position uh, that then can sometimes cause them issues later on in the sim. So just as an example, is you're not in real life, not on the line. And by the way, just for the general public, uh, if the pilot doesn't pass the simulator, they won't be allowed to fly you. So you've got no risk of, of uh, getting any dodgy pilots. But but let's say you know you you, you misdiagnose uh, a, a, a fault or something like that, or you get to a checklist item and um, you 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 don't quite trap a mistake. I think in those cases, the examiner will be unhappy with you and will might press the issue, but not to catch you up, but mainly for their learning purposes. Uh, so for example, um, there's a crew that are on the ground, uh, they, they take off in the simulator, have an engine failure. Um, they then check the weather that they got on the ground to say, oh, actually, the weather in X, Y, and Z is brilliant. We're going to divert to there. But they don't check the weather in the air. Cases like that, the examiner will get you. He'll let you get to the top of descent at your destination. You'll call up, and the examiner or the, the, the pretend ATC will say, um, are you aware that the weather at the moment is um, 50 meters in freezing fog and the runway is closed due to snow? Uh, <laughs> just that sort of thing. In, in those cases, yeah. But it, it's it's not to catch you out. It's just to emphasize the learning objective if if there's a point that they want to make. Actually, a uh, pilot Pips actually just said, just, you know, just for fun, the worst one that I ever had was Lovi's departure, 125 meters, and a fire truck in the middle of the runway scared the living what's its out of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Goodness me, yeah, that's, uh, that's 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 quite scary, actually. Gosh. So, just a couple of final ones from the team here, then for you, Casey. Um, obviously, looking to the future. Obviously, you're flying the 73 at the moment. Um, is is there a kind of um, a path of where you want to go? Do you want to fly long haul, you know, wide bodied stuff, or are you going to stick with the sort of the smaller, narrow bodied uh, single aisle 73? That's a that's a great question. I think where I am, where I'm where I'm at in in, in life in the old job, um, at one point I was traveling two weeks of every month. Uh, it was a global position, so I got all my travel out the system. Um, I'm fairly lucky. I work for a company which has got a fixed roster pattern, so it's five days on, four days off, um, and also we. Um, we get back home every day. We don't have any, and I absolutely love that. Uh, for where it is, you know, I'm 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 very happy for where I am. I think the airline industry has changed. So long haul off today is not the same as long haul was 20 years ago. You know, gone are the days where you'd fly to Antigua, sit there on a beach for a week, and then come back all inclusive. You could bring your partner, your family, or whoever you you wanted. Now it's it's all very safe, but with airlines having to become a lot more efficient financially, um, it's all you get the minimum amount of rest that you need to be safe and legal and then you're coming home and with long haul unfortunately you can find yourself let's say flying um westbound going to the states one day you get there you have your day's rest you come back you have two days off and then you could be going across to china the other way um the the long-term effects on that in, in terms of your personal relationships in terms of your uh and, and so on and so forth i think for family life would be quite quite difficult because you'll just never be never be home um so no it, it doesn't really appeal to me uh in terms of the flight deck and what it is um i, I don't think there is a great deal of difference without with without sounding uh, odd okay fine an a350 will have maybe uh different systems slightly more advanced systems compared to uh a 73 but for the all intents and purposes it's the same thing uh we get there and we set a cruise at 37,000 feet 
and behind in front of, or in front of us will be a triple seven at 37,000 feet with the same view, listening to the same frequency. So yeah, I don't, I don't see the, for me, I personally, I don't see the attraction there. So we've got one last question to ask you, which Nev is going to ask you, and it's a question that we ask all our guests. So Nev. Yes, it's, it's the question. The question. Oh, yes, hit me, hit me. <laughs> no pressure at all, Casey, but uh, given the chance to fly any aircraft at all, either current or retired, commercial, GA, military, anything at all, what would it be? Uh, can I give two? I know that's cheating. You, you can have two, you can have two. Number one, uh, I'm, I absolutely love the triple seven. I think that's just amazing. The the, the G ninety one one five Bs with one hundred fifty thousand pounds of thrust either side, and all the like technical achievements that that did. Um, and with the ETOPS of extended range twin engine operations, it's It's phenomenal, uh, and just the sound, the aftergeek in me every time I hear a G ninety screw up on my yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's just it's just brilliant. And the other one um, is it's got to be Concord. I, I I think when you're I used to listen to it on YouTube. You can listen to some of the PAs that the captain used to make. And it's just brilliant. Uh, and, you know, uh, they'll tick over uh, 0 0.97, 0 0.98, 0 0.99, Mach 1, and the captain will come on cool as a cucumber. Well, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. Mach 1, the speed of sound, no bumps, no bangs, Concord. And you just think, that is cool. <laughs> love it. I love that. That's so cool. That is so cool. Oh, I'm sure you've, sorry, this is the last, I'm sure you've heard. Uh, of the of the beers and stuff where they come on and say, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're sat at 60,000 feet, Mach 2. Everyone else uh, uh, around us is sat in space suits, but we're sat in lounge suits. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, ne Nev, you had the pleasure of actually being on Con Concorde, didn't you? It was my first ever flight, would you believe, uh, back in, oh, it was in the 70s. Uh, my father knew someone that worked for British Airways Engineering and they did a friends and family day trip out around the Bay of Biscay and, and, and back again. Uh, and I didn't really, so the first time I'd ever been on any aircraft whatsoever, <clears throat> I really couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. Um, it was only until I got on my second aircraft, which was a, uh, I think it was a Monarch 737 out of Luton, uh, probably going to Mallorca. Realised how disappointing the takeoff was compared <laughs> to the one that I just had, uh, but uh, that was what, uh, my love for it. Start and then we had the opportunity, obviously, as you saw, of interviewing uh, John Hutchinson uh, at uh, the start of the year, which was amazing, fantastic, and uh, yeah, really, really good. So uh, yeah. So we're going to say a big thanks, Casey, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. But before you go, can you just give, a, in case anyone missed it, some uh, links to your social me uh, media pages and where people can find out more about what you do? Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's uh, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I, I feel like I, 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 I want to make an excuse and not continue with the Friday evening with my girlfriend now. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah pr probably best not do that. Yeah. I, I'd rather sit here and talk airplanes, to be fair. <laughs> but uh, you know, this is uh, this is great. Uh, yes, yeah, so anyone who wants to catch up or has got any questions or anything, uh, kcthepilot.com for the blog. Um, also, uh, don't forget uh, the book is on Amazon. Uh, if you just search how to become a pilot in uh, Europe, it's 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 on there. And then uh, we've also got the YouTube channel. So yeah, just reach out anyway. If you've got any questions, 
anything you aren't sure about, um, yeah, just uh, just reach out through any of the Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, whatever, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll catch up. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's it's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it, and now uh, hopefully keep in touch and uh, see you all soon. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's been very much our pleasure, Casey, and I'm I'm sure this won't be the last we see of you on the show. So uh, be great to have you on. Uh, it's time, I'm afraid, to move on. A lot of people are very much enjoying what is known as the plain truth, and this week I had a little chat with and it was literally this week this one was actually recorded on tuesday i had a little chat with captain al and we were learning all about winglets hello and welcome to another plain truths and this week we're going to be talking about winglets joining me as always is the legend that is captain al hi captain al Hi Matt, how are things? Yeah, very good, thank you, very good. Thanks good. for uh, agreeing to join us on another session of uh, The Plain Truth. Really enjoying no this problems. series. No problems, and I see you've gone for a meaty one this time with lots of science and aerodynamics. <laughs> Absolutely, why not, indeed. So let's, okay. let's, let's get cracking, that, shall we then? So, look, I, I mean, I, I feel like winglets are, are a new thing. I mean, they aren't a new thing, I suppose, because they have been around for at least 20 plus years, I'm sure you'll, you'll tell me. But, uh, I mean, there was a time when there weren't winglets and then suddenly winglets appeared so really what are they and what do they do okay well yes you're absolutely right they are a, a relatively new occurrence and basically it's all about the sort of continuous evolutionary process of aerodynamic design so if you think about the design of cars uh, as we are now in 2021 versus how they looked say 20 years ago you can start to see oh well people are spending a lot of time in wind tunnels and you know computer enhancement to try to to make these cars more aerodynamic so quite clearly it's beneficial in aeroplanes as well so if you go back i don't know 30 years or so uh, time flies no pun intended um, wing tips just sort of kind of ended they were just where the, the the wing ended it was just a natural curve and then as the ability to uh, simulate uh, aerodynamic flow over wings became uh, more and more possible with the power of computers aerodynamics started to look at what actually happens to the airflow over the top of the wing because of course we all know that aeroplanes fly by virtue of uh, Bernoulli's principle. So you've got air flowing over the top of the wing, air flowing underneath the wing. Uh, one creates a low pressure area, high pressure wants to go to the low pressure area, that's what causes you lift. And I'm not gonna go into any more detail than that because I'm not educated enough or scientific enough, but that, that's what we know. The, the upper surface of the wing has uh, a greater length, if you like, than the lower surface because of the shape of it. So the top is, is curved and the bottom is typically flat. So therefore, air has to speed up as it goes over the top to arrive at the same point in time as the air that goes underneath. What they then started to look at is what happens along the length of the wing and what happens to the air at the end of the wing. And what they started to discover was that uh, air flow was basically rolling over the top of the wing into the, into the underneath. And that's undesirable. So, you know, how do you stop something going somewhere that you don't want it to go? Well, you build a fence. So on the picture that's behind me, you'll see uh, an A321, I think. 
and um, you'll see that on the wing tip itself there is the the wing tip fence it's the little yellow bits that are pointy up and down and in simple terms they they stop the uh, airflow from coming over the top of the wing and underneath and vice versa it's just a fence so that's a very simple one that goes back to the original design of the a320 family and then you know it was discovered that this is quite good now one of the benefits of this the primary benefit is that if you are managing to create more lift out of the wing then uh, ultimately it's more efficient and what we're we all about we're about saving fuel so that's that's the driving force is fuel efficiency so then clever people with computers started to look at other shapes and on the the airbus models you'll see then that there's a particular point in time where we just go from simple wingtip fences into sharklets <laughs> so it's a bigger fence basically and that's that's all it's about is that they worked out that actually if we have a bigger fence we can stop more of this this air going in the wrong direction um, and we can increase our fuel efficiency and where you have say the boeing product well they went from basically uh, nothing to that kind of split wing that you see um, on uh, the modern uh, 737s and also quite a huge sort of upper fence if you like now it all really revolves around i suppose uh, aerodynamic patents how your wing is designed and you know the exact specifications as to what sort of shape of fence and i suppose you could say that there's, there's an element of fashion <laughs> So everybody's trying to look for that unique style um, and to achieve the, the end result. So when we first had the big sharklets on the Airbus, uh, Airbus came out with a fuel saving figure. And what we actually discovered in reality was that uh, the fuel savings were greater than what Airbus had predicted at, uh, predicted at. Now there is one drawback to having these big fences winglets, sharklets, scimitars, whatever you want to call them out on the wings. And that is when it comes to dealing with the aeroplane in a crosswind, because you've got quite a large vertical plane that the wind can get hold of. So it does make, in certain cases, uh, crosswind handling of the aeroplane a bit more difficult. Wow. Okay. So, so there's several different types. Uh, John, very kindly, our producer John has very kindly sort of mentioned several. So you've got wingtip fences. You mentioned split winglets, sharklets, and that. So are they literally just different designs of of the same product? I mean, or are certain ones more suitable for different aircraft because of the size of them and things? So, for example, would you have a a certain type on on like an air, a larger aircraft like an A380 uh, versus um, what you'd have on 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 the A320? It's a it's a difficult one because it all really revolves around the same end goal to get more efficiency out of the wing, and it's a function then of obviously there are sort of if you like patented or copyright shapes because these are you know highly valuable assets. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also the fact that with the the major manufacturers they're not going to copy one another because that's almost an admission well that they got it right and we didn't so everyone's <laughs> right. going to go down their, their own avenues and then it's yeah the design of the wing so if you look at say for example 
the A330 wing, it has a huge wingspan, so it's a very, very efficient wing. So it doesn't necessarily need the same sort of funky bits uh, as a, a, a less efficient wing might need. Or indeed, uh, when you get up to large wingspans where you're trying to limit the length of the wing because ultimately you've got to maneuver it between, you know, buildings and lampposts and that sort of thing. So you can't just go bigger and bigger and bigger with the wing. So, um, uh, you know, the, the new 777 has, you know, bits that fold up. So it's got an extra long wing, but it has to fold them up uh, for ground maneuvering. So one way that you could say that you make the wing a little bit bigger is, you know, having quite big winglets on it, it kind of extending the wing out slightly. But yeah, it, it, it's all a function of very, very clever aerodynamics and quite a, an evolving subject. And I have no doubt that when the next new aeroplane is rolled out, and I, I mean a completely new one, um, we'll see another funky shape and your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> well, as always, Al comprehensively answered. Thank you very much. My pleasure. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Big thanks uh, to Captain Al and, of course, you, Matt, for putting together that uh, oh, no, no, the best, awesome the, segment. The best thing about that is I just sit there, ask one question, and then uh, just enjoy what comes out next. I mean, it's a great, it's a great bit of fun. As I say, and that's actually some of the new ones. As I say, we recorded that one on Tuesday. So. Uh, and don't forget, if you're listening or watching the show, if you're watching us now in the chat room, if you have any particular subject that you may want uh, Matt to ask Captain Al, please do either email us or you can send us that into our WhatsApp number, which I can't remember, but it's... Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I knew you'd remember. <laughs> so... Uh, we have uh, we've got a picture actually that uh, we've had yeah. sent now, in from Stephen Ivy. Yeah, now I found this fascinating because and what triggered it was I, I was having a conversation with him, uh, obviously about the breaking news we mentioned earlier in the um, at the top of the show here. And, and interestingly, this is how essentially it was broken to uh, pilots who were in the air at the time. Uh, literally came in on the ACAST system. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I just find that fascinating. I, I assume that's what this particular system is for. Is it for for getting you know, urgent messages to to the crew. Yes, it, it, it's a you know ground to air text messaging system basically. Yeah. What it is, but yes, uh, so uh, yeah, quite uh, quite uh, big news there about uh, the PSA uh, mm. grounding the fleet. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's not our only news uh, for this week, uh, Carlos. No, we have got uh, some commercial news to get through this week. So, uh, if everyone's ready, yes, 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 let's yes, go. Let's go. And 
we kick off this week with the first story, which is a Ryanair story. And the headline from travelweekly.co.uk is Ryanair extends free flight changes until the 31st of March. So Ryanair is extending a zero flight change fee for all customers who book before the end of March. The budget carrier is also allowing up to two booking date moves until October the 31st. In light of ever-changing COVID restrictions, Ryanair is giving customers greater peace of mind when booking their Easter and summer 2021 holidays when Ryanair believes air travel will reopen following the successful rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines in the UK, Denmark and many other EU states, the carrier said. A spokesperson added, if your plans change, so can your booking. So to provide as much flexibility and confidence as possible for Ryanair customers, we have extended our zero flight change fee for all bookings made in January, February and March. Mindful that COVID restrictions change regularly, Ryanair is now allowing up to two free flight date changes on all bookings up until the 31st of October. Uh, Customers can now book flights to see family and friends this Easter or book a well-deserved summer 2021 break with confidence, knowing that if they need to postpone or change their travel dates, they can do so with a zero change fee until the end of October 2021. Now, I guess this is uh, something really that had to be done, didn't it, really, guys? I mean, we still don't know um, the full extent of when, you know, when, if ever, there's going to be any kind of normality, I suppose, to to life before COVID. But, uh, I mean, mean, BA have been doing something similar for a while, haven't they, Nev? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, everybody is guessing at the moment because nobody knows and that's the thing normally with these sort of situations if you've got you know aircraft maintenance or you've got uh, problems here and there you can you know fix things and you know roughly when things might be back to service although you know the max is a good example of something which is just dragged on uh, and on yeah. but uh, with this sort of situation uh, all bets are off currently now obviously the airline business needs to get back to some kind of normality otherwise mm-hmm. no one will have an airline business and if you think it's not just you know it's the pilots and the crew cabin crew and all the rest of it it's the ground staff catering retail you know all the things that are connected to uh, to what they do so yeah i i'm not surprised um but uh, yeah the, there's going to be more announcements of all sorts in the coming weeks and months i'm absolutely sure indeed so nev you've got the uh, next story all about uh, JetBlue. Yes, it's on the pointsky.com and uh, it says that uh, JetBlue hasn't finalised its long-awaited service to London. Uh, in a complaint filed with the US Department of Transportation, JetBlue said that it, facing, it was facing slot uncertainty in the UK and has called the US called on, on the US government to take official notice. Uh, the complaint details that JetBlue is facing difficulties in a obtaining slots in London airports, even as more airlines pull out of the city's busiest airports. Uh, The airline claims that it's being locked out of London's airports and has called on the UK government to take action. Uh, Virgin Atlantic and Norwegian continue to hold their London Gatwick slots, even where, as in the case of Virgin Atlantic, there are no firm plans for the carrier to resume service at the airport anytime soon, uh, JetBlue said in its filing. Uh, The company has identified that it had difficulties in securing slots at both Heathrow and additional slots uh, slots at Gatwick. In November, the carrier secured slots at both Gatwick and London Stansted, but was denied from acquiring any slots at Heathrow. 
At the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, carriers like JetBlue poised to enter the transatlantic market and disrupt the status quo and fulfil a crucial need for low-cost uh, low carrier transatlantic service are unable to uh, sufficiently secure London Heathrow slots uh, consistently timed uh, Gatwick slots because of the fiction that carries, carriers are going to return to the pre-COVID-19 status quo. They are not, and the UK government needs to address this immediately, they said. Uh, the airline has urged the UK government to take a similar approach to that of the FAA uh, in the US. Uh, in there, uh, the agency has extended slot relief at seven airports in the country, whereby carriers are exempt from the typical requirement that they operate at least 80% of their scheduled flights. Uh, but the FAA has urged airlines to return slots voluntarily. Uh, earlier this month, a low-cost carrier, Norwegian Air, announced it would be suspending the long-haul segment of its business. As a result, it was forced to close its crew bases around the world, including at Gatwick, where the airline focused its UK operations. But the airline still has its slots into the airport, which could be planning to use to bolster its long-haul operation. Well, that's um, one of those things that happens in the airline business, isn't it? Uh, holding on to your slot because they are so valuable. And of course, giving that up to a competitor's airline, um, you know, it has long term damage potentially. But there's, um, there's stuff going on here. So some negotiation may have to take place, I think. Well, I mean, I, I'm sort of looking at this thinking, as you say, obviously, as you touched on there, Norwegian obviously is sort of pulling out of long haul routes and stuff. I mean, there have been airlines that we've lost off the back of this uh, particular, um, you know, incident, shall we say, pandemic, if you want to use another word. I mean, surely there is capacity now for for slotting in something, you know, like the, this this jet blue route. I don't, you know, I. I think for me, are they going to need? Are they going to need all their slots? I mean, because let's be honest. As much as I wish that you know, in three months' time, we're looking at the aviation industry going back to how it was. I do think it's going to be you know a good you know three, four, maybe five years mm. before we see any kind of the volumes that we had before. I think looking at flights to the US, especially for when we were looking at flying out last year, and where we wanted to fly to to Charlotte because we were obviously going to go and see Steph and Armando. Um, we were restricted really to obviously flying with American or who co-chair with BA or BA yeah. who co-chair with American. The problem with those flights was they're incredibly expensive flights mm. because they have the monopoly on yeah. flying from here to that airport in the US. So I think we we could we need a not just not necessarily yeah. a low cost airline to fly from the UK to to America, but we need someone like JetBlue that. Yeah. Has a, uh, has an affordable fare that we can all afford to be able to fly to the US to do these things. This is it, mm. and and you know, and and I mean, we all you know mock Ryanair and and EasyJet and all that kind of thing, you know, as the buses of the skies. But of course, that's the one thing that in the short haul sector, people like Ryanair has done, and it has brought very stiff competition to the legacy carriers. And, you know, I mean, in some respect, in so many ways, I'm disappointed that the Norwegian thing hasn't worked. And of course, was it, is it, I want to say Primera, Primera, whoever. Primera, it was, yeah. Primera beforehand, uh, you know, very cost-effective flights. But then, I don't know, if you don't get the model right, then then it, it just doesn't work. Mm. I mean, I don't know what you think, Nev. No, that's right. And of course, this, this has been an ongoing thing right back to the days of Freddie Laker, 
if you can remember back that far. And in fact, Carl, so you've got a yes. nice and shirt <laughs> lid on because it was Freddie Laker and then subsequently uh, Richard Branson with Virgin Atlantic that made uh, the competition against the traditional legacy carriers. Yes. And they had a lot of you know success doing it. So I think we have to have a situation where there's fair and reasonable competition on, on both sides of the Atlantic because obviously the North Atlantic routes are some in in normal times are some of the most busy and some of the most profitable as well yeah no that's true so next story moving on is uh, on the abc.net.au which is come, comes to us from australia and uh, one of the things that you don't want to miss when you're landing your uh, Baron aircraft, uh, light aircraft, is a nose wheel. And uh, this one, emergency landing at Adelaide's Parafield Airport after pilot reports nose wheel fault. So a plane with uh, two people on board was forced to make an emergency landing uh, on its nose, sending sparks flying at Adelaide's Parafield Airport after the pilot noticed a problem with its front wheel. Emergency services were alerted to the situation just after midnight when the pilot of the twin-engine Beechcraft B-55 reported the nose wheel of the aircraft had a fault and it was not sure it was locked down to land. The plane was forced to repeatedly circle the area in Adelaide's north at low altitude with authorities at the airport confirming the problem with the nose wheel. The aircraft then landed on its two rear wheels with its nose hitting the tarmac, causing sparks to fly uh, just before 1.30am in the morning. Matt's playing the video there for those of you watching on YouTube. Neither the pilot nor the passenger was injured. The Beechcraft plane will be examined for mechanical problems and a report will be prepared for the Australian Transport Safety Bureau. Uh, flight set records show it left Wickery Airport. I probably pronounced that incorrectly. Grant McCarran, send your emails in. Uh, Hartwig uh, Air CEO David Blake told the ABC an instructor and a student pilot were conducting a training flight when they noticed the problem as they prepared for the landing. Uh, they experienced a problem lowering the undercarriage, he said. Uh, they said that when it lowered, there was an unsafe warning light on the nose gear. Uh, obviously, he obviously got two greens and one uh, red. Uh, the pilot uh, then contacted air traffic control, kept circling, as we said. And they also said they had plenty of fuel on board. Not sure if that's a great thing to have when you're making a uh, landing like this with sparks, but there we go. Uh, but the, once the emergency services were in place, he did landing at the slowest, you know, a uh, well, check-up. A little buff out. Bit of yeah. T-cut, bit, bit of paint from Halfords. And, uh... I, I think it'll certainly need some uh, a new propeller on the front. There's no no two ways about that. <laughs> they did a good job, but didn't they? They got it down in one yes. piece. And, uh, That's the most important. Yeah, well. absolutely. And also, uh, just FYI, uh, Grant doesn't tend to do emails nowadays. He tends to just tweet us all instead. So exactly. that's no doubt where the complaint will come in from your uh, or Or he WhatsApp me at, at some ridiculous time. Oh, will he? All oh, right. <laughs> okay, that doesn't sound like him at all. No, uh, Matt, yes. Matt, you are the owner of a Alfie uh, I'm familiar AKA, yes I'm familiar with the, aka the barking is, barking noise thing <laughs> barking you, noise yes yes this next story Matt uh, does this upset you slightly um so yeah I have mixed 
I have mixed feelings about this story. We'll we'll come back to to the, that in a moment. But anyway, uh, on the Detroit CBS Local dot com website, and the headline is Southwest Airlines will no longer allow emotional support animals. Uh, so Southwest Airlines has announced that it will no longer uh, no longer transport emotional support a- animals in the cabin of the aircraft. Effective the first of March, the airline will be will only accept trained service dogs for travel with customers. Uh, with this revision, Southwest Airlines will only uh, allow service dogs that are individually trained to work or perform tasks for the benefit of a qualified individual uh, with a disability to travel with the customer, officials stated in a release posted on Monday. The types of disability include a physical, sensory, uh, psychiatric, intellectual or other mental disability, but no other species will be accepted as trained service animals. Uh, We applaud the Department of Transport's recent ruling that allows us to make these important changes to address numerous concerns raised by the public and airline employees regarding the transport of untrained animals in the cabins of aircraft, said Steve Goldberg, the Senior Vice President, Operations and Hospitality. Southwest Airlines continues to support the ability of qualified individuals with a disability to bring trained service dogs for travel and remains committed to providing a positive and sensible travel experience for all our customers with disabilities. As part of this change, uh, customers travelling with trained service dogs must now present a complete and accurate dot service animal air transportation form at the gate or ticket counter on their day of travel to affirm a service animal's health, behaviour and training. Um, Now, I mean, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? Because... I, I suppose this is the same old story, isn't it? It's the min- minority spoiling it for the majority, isn't it? And you know, when you're when you're looking at an emotional support horses on board an aircraft, I mean, you really are, you know. And, and I know I'm probably going to get told mm. off for this, but you know, I'm all for if I mean there 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 are genuine circumstances like guide dogs, which I think is more or less what they're referring to here in this article, where you know the animal is of utmost assistance to the well-being of that individual and it, it you know it gives them independence and all that kind of thing i completely get um but yeah i'm really not sure that you know i don't know as i say i think it's the minority who sports it for the majority as per usual i, I have to say that we've, we've all had the privilege of meeting alfie i know me and me and nev have <laughs> and you know I, I think if you took alfie on board he would be an emotional support pet for everyone on board that flight are you kidding me? He'd be high. He's the biggest wetty in the world. The minute those engines started, he'd be cowering and hiding underneath the seat and all that kind of thing. And of course, that's the other thing, is it? You're taking these animals onto an aircraft, as you say, like, and as they say in that article there, you know, they they need to be trained because it, you know, if they've never been on an aircraft before, and you suddenly put an animal, on, oh dear, what's what's you're right there. Stephen H in the chat room. Oh dear. I'm sure the airlines don't mind support horses as long as the customers pony up. Oh. Oh dear. I mean that's that's your style of jokes there, Nev. I don't know. <laughs> My goodness. We really will need to get some kind of tumbleweed sound effect, won't we, for a lot of these. But uh, yeah. I'm surprised I'm surprised Lane's not said anything yet. He's very quiet. Uh, he's normally right at the front of the queue. No, no, he, he's saving it up. You you yeah. wait. There'll be a barrage of abuse. I I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this question, but obviously um 
as a human being, you're, uh, and there's pressurisation adjustment in the aircraft as you climb and descend, and quite often you have to just, you know, pop your ears on, on the way down, for example. Um, I just wonder how animals deal with changes mm. in pressurisation uh, in the aircraft, as, as subtle as though they, they might be, but uh, um, I, I don't know how they do that, and depending whether they're cats, dogs or horses or whatever they are. You can't exactly... No idea how, how that works. can't exactly give your, your, your dog a rhubarb uh, crumble, a rubber, rhubarb custard sweet, Nev. No, or a polo. As you can always rely on Miles High as well, as the puns start rolling in. Horses on a plane, great movie apparently. Uh, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Stephen H says, yes, he says that, yes, that'll be the the main feature at a cinema. Right, Uh, Lane Lane Street has woken up, by the way. He's just saying, uh, sorry, I was was busy thinking about my emotional support, Amanda Holden, uh, which I think is a very important, uh, you know, very important on an aircraft. Oh, Um, Lane. Oh, dear. uh, Nick is saying that apparently a knitting knitting needle works well. Um, Nev? Okay. Right. <laughs> not specifying where or, or uh, no. How. Okay. Perhaps we should gloss over that. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> okay. moving on. The uh, the next story, Nev. Uh, this one is for you, and and I'm sure Matt's already queued up the X Files music to play alongside it. No, no, because we got told off for doing that once. Didn't okay. We? Fair yeah. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more copyright stuff. But um, this is on the RT.com, and it says that uh, two Pakistan international airlines pilots have uh, captured intriguing video footage of an extremely bright UFO during a domestic flight. Uh, The video has gone viral in Pakistan. It emerged on Wednesday that the pilots saw the strange object during a flight from Karachi to Lahore at around 4pm on January the 23rd. The aircraft was travelling at an altitude of 35,000 feet when the sighting occurred. Uh, The UFO was extremely bright despite the presence of sunlight, the pilot says, speaking to Pakistan's Geo News. Uh, One of the flight team began recording the white circular object and the footage subsequently went viral in Pakistan. Several of the country's news networks reported on the mysterious encounter. A spokesperson for Pakistan International Airlines said that the pilots immediately reported the unidentified object to the control room where they came across it uh, near the Punjabi city of Rahim Yar Khan. Uh, According to the pilots, they witnessed a flying saucer at an altitude of 35,000 feet in the sky, the national carrier's spokesperson said. It's too early to say what the object was. In fact, we might not be able to tell what the object was at all, uh, the spokesperson added. However, something was spotted and it was reported in accordance with the required protocol. Well, there we are. What do you think about that, guys? Tony S uh, makes a very good point, Nev. Isn't it odd that all the UFO footage is always awful? <laughs> I see it. It's like, some, it's like someone's holding the camera and they're going like this. You know, unless they're going for extreme turbulence, you know, you, you can hold a camera fairly <laughs> Like the Loch Ness Monster. Have you ever seen any HD footage? Uh, or no, funny enough. Yeah. Loch Ness Monster. No, nor no, no me. No. No, <laughs> funny that, isn't it? It's, it's all a bit sort of suspicious. But there we are. I suppose it's... A... Uh, Rick. Rick Bell. Rick oh, Bell no. says it's the light from Venus bouncing off some swamp gas reflecting into the pilot's eyes. Brilliant. Absolutely. There we go. Right. Well, there we are. Thank you. Expert. That's why we have listened like Rick. Absolutely. Yes. Expertly answered as always. Uh, Legend. <laughs> Legend. Thank you, Rick. Okay. So, 
last story, and uh, this one comes to us from Sam Chewy. Uh, his website, samchewy.com. And uh, sad news is because I really was hoping to see this aircraft um, with an airline soon, but the Boeing 777X is further delayed <sighs> until 2023. So Boeing are now anticipating that the first 777X delivery will now occur in late 2023. Uh, this is uh, stated on their 2024th quarter results. Uh, Boeing have reported that the program has also recorded a $6.5 billion loss. Uh, among the factors contributing to the revised first delivery schedule uh, and reach forward loss are an updated assessment of certification requirements based on going communication with civil aviation authorities and an updated assessment of market demand based on continued dialogue with customers resulting in adjustments to production rates and the program accounting quality uh, quantity, increased changing in cooperation costs and associated customer and supply chain impacts. The production rate expectation for the combined 777 and 777X program remains at two per month uh, in 2021. Previous sources have told Reuters that Seattle-based Boeing is unlikely to have the 777X in service before 2022-2023. Uh, While Boeing says they have sold 309 777X planes worth $442 million each at list price, mainly in the industry, or many in the industry have questioned their dependence on Middle Eastern carriers who are currently scaling back orders. It's a shame, guys, really. I was looking forward to seeing this 777X, mainly because of its uh, interesting folding wing tips. What do you reckon, Nev? Yeah, I mean, there's just more and more delay, isn't it? And uh, uh, Miles High uh, says that the uh, 777X certification will hinge on the new wings. Oh, no. Lane, you've got competition. There's no two ways about High it. High quality material <laughs> coming up today. It is, absolutely. Please. Nev's writing them down for Facebook. Yeah, I'm just making later. a note of that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Actually, you're referring to the, um, obviously, Boeing there. And, of course, uh, sort of quite exciting news, really, is that uh, Europe's now followed the FAA, haven't they? And they have mm. now approved um, Max. the MAX uh, for flying in Europe again, which is, uh, uh, it's got to be good news, really, hasn't it? Certainly, yeah. I look yeah. forward to. I personally look forward to flying on it. When I, when yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, I think you know. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure they've been through it with a fine tooth comb, haven't they? Mm, definitely. So that is why we bring the commercial news segment to a close, and uh, we've got some military news coming up in just a moment, uh, which has uh, been put together for us uh, as always by Armando. Uh, but uh, we'll be coming up with some military news just after this. If you want to improve your 737 knowledge, why not attend one of our live technical refresher courses? These two-day webinars are not just a Zoom call, nor are they just an instructor stood in front of a whiteboard. Our professional production team in their London studio uses the latest technology to bring you a fully interactive and engaging experience. Ask your instructor questions live at any time. For more information and to sign up, visit 737lounge.com. And actually, I will say that uh, that is a good podcast to download as well. Oh, is oh, it? Yes. 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 Yeah, I have listened to the first three episodes of that podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's really great stuff if you're interested in uh, learning more about the uh, inner workings of the uh, 737, 737 and being yeah. a pilot. It is a good little, uh, good little show to download. So, yeah. 
Excellent. Fantastic. So let's move on with some military news if everyone's ready. Yes, yes. yes. Good luck, everyone. Thank you. So it's some good news for us here in the UK. This one comes to us uh, from Belfast, telegraph.co.uk. HMS Queen Elizabeth takes over as Royal Navy flagship. So aircraft carrier, as in aircraft carrier, it carries aircraft, uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth takes over as our now our Royal Navy fleet flagship. the fleet commander, Vice Admiral Jerry Kidd, who was uh, the first seagoing commanding officer of the three billion pound warship, uh, was received on board at Portsmouth Naval Base to mark the transfer of the role from assault ship to a or from assault ship HMS Albion, which has held a title of for nearly two years. The transfer was announced uh, to the Royal Navy ships. Uh, and shore establishments by a signal at 1.30pm on the day. First Sea Lord Admiral Tony Radekin said the position of fleet flagship is a symbol of HMS Queen Elizabeth's importance to the nation, not just in restoring our carrier strike capability, but as a rolling statement of British commitment to global security, prosperity and trade. It's right now that we bestow such a historic title uh, in the coming months, HMS Queen Elizabeth will lead the most ambitious Royal Navy deployment in decades. She will be the focal point as we look forward to an extraordinary year. It was announced last week uh, that the Queen Elizabeth and its F-35B Lightning Jets will be uh, complemented by an attachment of the stealth fighters from the US Marine Corps, as well as a US Navy destroyer during its first operational strike group deployment. HMS Queen Elizabeth and its strike group will take first uh, part in a war fighting exercise with other NATO navies during exercise Strike Warrior off Scotland during the spring before it departs for the Mediterranean. The carrier will embark uh, or uh, F-35B jets from 617 Squadron, or the Danbusters, uh, Royal Ma- uh, Navy Merlin helicopters, and be escorted by a, the Royal Navy Type 45 destroyers and Type 23 frigates and support the ships of the Royal Navy Auxiliary Fleet as well. So other news, related news as well from uh, USNI.org. Now, US-UK sign agreement on upcoming deployment of HMS Queen Elizabeth with the American F-35Bs. The US and UK Defence Secretaries formally signed an agreement outlining their joint participation in the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group deployment in the spring. Uh, joining HMS Queen Elizabeth uh, on its inaugural deployment will be Marine Fighter Attack Squadron uh, 211, which flies the F-35B Joint Strike Fighter, as well as the USS, the Sullivan, the DG, uh, DDG 68, according to the statements from both countries. They said that they are delighted that the UK now possesses a 21st century carrier strike capability, which has been greatly assisted by the unswerving support and cooperation of the United States at all levels over the past decade, says Defence Secretary Ben Wallace in a UK statement he gave. The deployment embodies the strength of uh, bilateral ties and reflects the depth and breadth of this vital defence and security partnership. This deployment underscores the strength of our 
our bilateral ties and demonstrates US-UK inoperability, both of which are key tenets of the US national defence strategy. Uh, the leaders uh, look forward to seeing the culmination of nearly a decade of US-UK carrier cooperation when Carrier Strike Group 2021 sets sail from Portsmouth, UK later this year. The Marines from uh, VMFA 211 were tapped to serve alongside the Dam Busters on this Carrier Strike 21 deployment. The US Marines are helping fill out the air wing until the UK stands up more squadrons. The Marines got underway on the carrier in September and participated in group exercises and NATO joint warrior exercises in October, culminating in an initial operating capability declaration for the carrier strike group on January the 4th. Now, this is about time we had a aircraft carrier in our Royal Navy fleet, I will say. I was very have we got the aircraft to go with it, though? That's the question. Well, we have nearly got all the aircraft <laughs> we have there. Right, okay. Um, it's, it all boils down to, I think, costs and money. Plus, they also had quite a few teething problems, as we know, with uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth when she first uh, got laid down. But um, I think they've ironed out nearly all the issues they had with the, uh, with the carrier now. But, uh, yeah, it's good. We actually have an aircraft carrier again whoop, whoop. in the UK. <laughs> woo uh, Nev, you have got the next story, and um, make sure you pull that curtain across now. Oh, don't. Well, I'm slightly concerned about this story because, A, I'm reading it, and B, it is slightly before the nine o'clock watershed. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I shall do my best. Uh, it's on the military.com website. Headline says, privacy, please. Air Force wants to add toilet curtain on B-52 bomber. Uh, the US Air Force is looking to add privacy curtains to its B-52 Strato Fortress bombers as more women join flight crews. Earlier this month, the service published a request for information from textile or apparel companies about bomber privacy screens. As the B-52 continues to fly long-duration missions, especially with mixed crews, there is a high need for privacy during restroom activities, according to the solicitation posted on the government's acquisition and awards website. Who looks at this stuff? I don't know. <laughs> uh, the services bombers, including the B-1 Lancer and the B-2 Spirit, have been making a splash lately with uh, multiple high visibility flights around the world. Called Bomber Task Force missions, the short notice flights are still a long haul. A B-54 crew, sorry, B-52 crew, for example, can stay airborne for up to 40 hours uh, during a single mission and can fly 8,800 miles without refueling, according to the Air Force. Uh, many Air Force planes already have private bathroom compartments or partition spaces. Uh, the C-130 Hercules has a urinal and a toilet tucked in the back of the cargo area of the plane with a curtain that airmen can close around them. Uh, C-17 Globemaster III transport aircraft and KC-46 Pegasus tankers have a full lavatory with sink, toilet and lockable door. KC-135 Strato tanker, uh, KC-10 Extender and C-5 Super Galaxy aircraft all have lockable doors as well, said Air Force uh, Marshal Commander, sorry, Air Force Material Commander spokesman Brian Brackens. But these mobility aircraft are much more spacious on the inside, allowing for more comfortable latrine use than their bomber counterparts. The B-1 bomber, for example, has a small toilet 
behind the left front seat in the four-person cockpit, whilst the B2 stealth bomber has one stainless steel bowl. No walls behind the right seat of its two-pilot cockpit, according to popular mechanics. Uh, in the B52, a small urinal is located behind the offence compartment, according to photos featured on popular sites. A B-52 typically has two pilots, a weapons officer and an electronic warfare officer. <laughs> but can have up to two, uh, sorry, up to five flight crew, according to the Air Force. Uh, there's some things in here I'm not going to read out because there's just a little bit, um, a bit close to the mark for, for even my taste. Um, but, um, yeah, basically the military overall is responding to increased numbers of women in the ranks with improved dress and appearance practices as well, and new policies. Uh, women currently make up 21% of the Air Force, officials have said. Uh, Air Force Global Strike Command did not immediately answer questions on how many women are in the B-52 bomber community. And despite its age, the venerable Cold War-era Stratofortress is expected to, expected to fly well into the 2050s. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, it really is. Service. Uh, but yes, there, there was... There there was a couple of paragraphs in there that I would not have been able to get through uh, without <laughs> going into a muttly laugh. Right. So, okay. <laughs> lots of love for this story in the chat room, uh, Nev. Yes, uh, I can imagine. Um, Rick Bell actually just says Rick Bell comes up with some uh, some good information. Actually, uh, Rick says sink the sinks are disabled in the USAF uh, C-17s uh, because the water tank will freeze after long hours in altitude or in cold weather. So fair enough. Um, Richard Adams um, says possibly they're bigger on the inside, uh, like a TARDIS or is it a TURDIS? <clears throat> um, Rick Bell also says brings new meaning to the uh, w words bombs away. Oh dear, mm. oh dear, it's all gone a bit downhill, really, hasn't it? Yeah. I think it's one I of mean, those. I mean, things. genuinely though, I mean this this is the thing, isn't it? It's like actually, as you say, I mean perhaps we, you know when it. In a time when that aircraft was created and it was, you know, basically just men that, you know, that were in mm. the forces and they were flying it, then, you know, there is a strong argument for privacy being less of a, you know, the, the whole classic sort of, you yeah. know, it's all, all lads together type thing. But, you know, as things have progressed, there are, you know, quite rightly more, um, you know, uh, uh, more people other than men, you know, in the, the forces. And it, it you know... I, there should be some privacy when it comes to, to things like that, really, shouldn't there? You should be able to, you know, sit on the loo in peace, let's be honest. I, I mean, don't know, I always leave a door open, but that's just me. That's oh. probably more information than our listeners <laughs> needed, to be fair, my friend. Uh, but, you know, thanks for sharing. Uh, okay. Sharing is caring. <laughs> sharing is caring, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Armando, thank you very much for those stories, as yeah. always. I know he's been popping in and out of the chat room most of the evening. So it is time to move on to the final part of the show. Yes, and the next part of the show is, of course... Uh, the segment that uh, everyone's been enjoying very much over the last four weeks. And this is the fifth part of the awesome interview that was with George Lee. So here it is. Now, um, back in the Air Force world, uh, I believe by now you're probably on your second tour uh, on the old Treble One Squadron, yes? 
Yes, I had a wonderful tour on the Sixth Squadron, the Flying Can Openers, as they were called, because of their wartime experience when going against tanks in the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, wonderful, wonderful time all around, absolutely. And when I got the news that I was going to be uh, posted to the sister squadron at the time, which was the other end of the hangar, that was 54 Squadron, but uh, they were going to be renamed, forming uh, Treble One Squadron uh, in the air defense role. And I was absolutely devastated because I loved the low-level weaponeering environment and I knew very relatively little about air defense. And I thought, this is, this doesn't get any worse. <laughs> I wasn't a terribly happy, happy chap, I guess. But anyway, um, one has to make the best of these things and uh, on we went. And I, I discovered that air defense, actually, there was a lot more to it than I, as I, than I realized as an outside observer, if you will. And holding, of course, quick readiness alert. QRA was a big part of the air defense world. And then the squadron moved from Coningsby up to Lucas in Fife in Scotland. And I vividly remember that day taking off from Coningsby, heading out over the North Sea to do the mission in typical Lincolnshire weather, low cloud-based drizzle and all the rest, finished the mission. And then instead of pointing back to Coningsby, pointed towards Lucas, let down and just scattered cumulus clouds, 50 kilometers visibility, whatever. I thought, wow, I can, I can cope with this. It was, it was a very pleasant contrast. And of course, let down into Lucas and we set up our squadron uh, there at Lucas, yeah. Uh, yeah, that must have been the one day in the year it wasn't raining at Lucas. Um, <laughs> so the, the uh, Phantom in the air defense role, quite different. Uh, and you were now on QRA and uh, protecting us against the uh, Soviet intrusions. Um, what was it like uh, when you did your first uh, Soviet intercept? Uh, and did they all go very smoothly? I can't specifically remember the first one, but rather impressions about QRA missions in general, I, I guess. We operated a long way north. We're right up there getting close to Iceland. And of course, naturally we have air-to-air refueling support coming up from the Southern tanker base. So they would be launched first and we would blast out and intercept what was usually the bear, the Soviet bear aircraft on their way south of Iceland around the top of the UK, Northern Ireland and around all the way down to a base in West Africa. Many of the Soviet crews uh, were fairly friendly. They didn't really mind us doing what we had to do. But occasionally you got a crew who really didn't want us there at all. But on the friendly side, I, I do recall a photograph, a picture in the Daily Telegraph once in the, in the UK showing a zoomed in on the tail turret of this bear with a Soviet holding up a Coke bottle. <laughs> <laughs> smile. That was the friendly side. But the nasty side, um, both day and night, and I remember by day you'd be sitting there off the wingtip relatively close, and they knew that the F-4 was going to be heavy. You've got full three-tank fit. You've got, you've got the, uh, the Sparrow Skyflash radar-directed missiles. You've got sidewinders. So the low speed handling isn't going to be brilliant. <laughs> they knew that. So they would slow right down and you'd be slowing down with them. And then having slowed down, they would turn towards you just to make life really interesting. And then 
take you right down at slow speed through cloud all the way down to pretty well the wave tops. So that, 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 that was all quite challenging. And at night, our intelligence, our intelligence people wanted the, the numbers on individual uh, airframes. And in order to get that, one had to come in directly underneath the aircraft and close up in the vertical to get close enough for the backseater, the navigator, to grab his torch and illuminate where the, where the number was and copy down the details before dropping back down again. And the Soviets knew exactly how close you had to get in order to get the number. So just before you got to that point, they had this nothing, you could only describe it as a searchlight. And they just switched that on right into your eyes. So you're, from your full night vision that you had acclimatized, suddenly this searchlight has shone into you and you, you could only do one thing, and that is just push the nose down and get away. So that, 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 that was the other not so nice side. Yeah, they, they had a few tricks like that, didn't they? Uh, mind you, uh, I found that a little bit of reheat was sufficient to illuminate the bottom of the aircraft if the torch wasn't strong enough. So um, you were you were at Lucas, uh, and the, the gliding might not have been quite so easy out there for you, was it? I would say that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, I did my uh, I was instructor. I, I did a lot of instructing, thermal cross country flying. Fundamentally, one could consider as not existing. So the soaring was in two, utilizing the two other forms of lift. There were two. This is at Port Moak. Uh, which wasn't that far inland really uh, from Lucas and there was two hills, Bernati and the Bishop and depending on the direction of the wind you just went over to the, one of those two hills and you soared up and down on the hills and you could only get to a certain maximum altitude so that basically was that type of lift, you had to have the wind blowing of sufficient strength. But the other type of lift which is the more interesting one is called wave lift and when the atmospheric conditions are right and wind is blowing across hills, you get a mirror effect carrying on further up into the atmosphere. And the best way to describe that is like the, a river when the, the water flow separates around a submerged rock. You get that little ripple effect which is mirrored downstream. And that's if you put that into the vertical, essentially that's what's happening. So it's possible to get an quite high using wave lift. The lift is characterized unlike thermals, which can be quite turbulent. Wave lift is silky, silky smooth. And you just have the instrument showing you that you're climbing quite well. And I've been up to, I got my diamond height, which is an altitude gain of 5,000 meters from the low point. Uh, I, I got to around about 29,000 feet. That's the highest I got over Scotland. Wow. That's so you're getting very cold and the bunny suit that we used to use on the F4 when we went off up to Iceland under the immersion suit, I actually used the bunny suit when I was going wave flying because it was wonderful and kept you really quite warm. So you had problems about keeping warm enough in the cockpit, you had problems about the cooling that took place and as you descended you know you had to be careful about misting canopies with the safety implications or all, all of that sort of thing. But wave lift is fascinating and around the world astonishing things have been done. There is a research glider called the Perlan, 
And it's called that because of a particular type of wave which occurs way, 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 way up out there. And they they're using it to gain all sorts of scientific data. British Aerospace has been involved uh, with this project. The fuselage is, of course, pressurized. And they've actually got already to just over 76,000 feet in this machine. Good Lord. It is astonishing. That's remarkable. But uh, sadly, your preparation for what was going to be your first uh, world championship attempt uh, wasn't ideal. But there you were. It was 1976 now, and you're uh, heading off for the 15th world championships uh, back in Finland. Uh, it must have been exciting, but I guess you were pretty nervous as well. It was so far from being an ideal preparation. It wasn't funny, uh, Nick. It really was. I was very hungry, certainly, and we did have the practice period, although the worlds themselves, as I said earlier, was around about two weeks. There's also practice, good solid practice week before that, and the weather was reasonably good, so I managed to get uh, quite a bit of flying. And an interesting thing that came out of that practice period was that I learned something more about myself and something that needed to change before day one on the big event, and that is Again, I started trying too hard and being too aggressive, I guess, trying to prove myself or whatever, and ending up low down and having to scrabble out in less than ideal lift and watching the hot shots cruise along overhead in the relaxed mode. And, you know, and I, 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 and I came to my senses and thought, no, I've, I've just got to back off here and fly more intelligently. So I managed to get up to speed before, before day one. I did indicate that on the pre-Worlds year in 1975, the weather was brilliant. Well, of course, when the big event came along, the weather was anything but brilliant. It, oh. And we, we had two or three reasonable racing days, uh, but overall, nothing like the previous year, absolutely nothing, which was disappointing. But we certainly got enough contest days and enough of a mix of weather to very, very definitely make it a valid contest uh, one memory that uh, sticks in, well, two memories, I suppose, one flight. The rules in those days actually allowed one, if you were to have the misfortune of landing out, within a certain time frame, you could actually de-rig the glider, put it in its trailer, get back to the airfield, put it all together uh, and actually launch again and go again on the task, And which was actually a crazy rule, but it was there, it was there. And I had a real problem on this particular day where I ended up with rain and watered instruments and I ended up landing out. The crew were there right on top very quickly. We took the glider apart in the field, put it in the trailer, broke every Finnish speed limit through <laughs> Finnish country roads, rushed back onto the airfield. The other members of the British team, the ground members were all there standing there ready, waiting screeched to a halt. I got out and just walked away completely, just let them get at it. The glider went together in record time. The ASW-17 that I was flying is not known for its ease of rigging, but that was, that was very impressive. A little bit tape put on for the junctions between, between the wing components. I was thrown in, map followed me, canopy shut, rope attached, up slack and away I went. And it worked out quite well. I think I ended up sort of eighth for that day. Certainly I was in the top 10. 
And the I'm, other, I'm curious. Sorry, so you, you've got so many days of competitions. Uh, if you just have one bad day uh, and do really badly, is it possible to catch up, or is that the competition more or less finished for you? Generally, if one has a really bad day, that's it. Competition level, the, the standard of the pilots is such that you're almost certainly not going to get back up. And we'll, we will come to it, no doubt, but um, my world championships in America was exactly uh, that situation. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the other memory from 1976, uh, well, first of all, my open class teammates and I generally were not team pairs flying, as we call it, like flying together in quite close physical proximity, helping each other in that way. I was up, we were up against a Polish pair who were very, very good. And they pair flew all the time. That, that, that was what they did. They were well used to it, whereas the Brits were not. But the final day, final days are usually interesting. And this one was no less dramatic. It was a thundery type day. The weather was appalling, absolutely appalling. I thought, surely they're going to cancel the day. Surely. Nope. Nope, we're going to go. All right. So we got airborne, managed to hold up, managed to climb up somehow. But my open class teammate, who's a very good pilot, was unable. And I was looking, I was holding my altitude, looking at the watch, and I just radioed to him. And I said, look, I got to go. Just got to go. I was in the lead. I would have liked his help, but this isn't going to work. So off I go on my own, feeling very lonely, and went out from this terrible weather conditions and looked ahead and said, gosh, blue sky. So out into the blue sky, the conditions were not great, but it was more pleasant, that's for sure. And I'm gliding along and suddenly I'm aware I'm not actually on my own. You know when you have that feeling? And I look <laughs> yes. off my left wingtip and who do I see out there? But this German registered motor glider and this TV man with a monstrous big camera on his shoulder and he's filming me. <laughs> <laughs> go away <laughs> i don't need this <laughs> i know but you you were becoming a celebrity you were leading the competition i guess it was almost a you know uh, inevitable oh honestly that Excellent. that man has had so many like awards and we will come more into details of about the rest of his career very shortly but i mean what an illustrious gliding career i mean so many world titles and and challenges to the titles mm. and just gliding awards in general is incredible and nick looking so smart and dapper i always likes to dress up doesn't he yeah yes he does <laughs> So uh, we are going to start to uh, bring the show to a close. Quick rundown of what everyone's doing next week. We're going to start with you, Nev, first. Nev, what's going uh, on next well, week? I've bought a new green screen, so I'm going oh, to experiment with steady. that during the week, see how that <laughs> works. Excellent. Um, uh, but apart from that, it's, it's the same week as it was last week. Right, <laughs> OK, yes, yeah. <laughs> Matt, what are you doing next week? I'll probably be dealing with people who are complaining about their wine not arriving and how I've ruined their lives by it not oh. arriving when promised. So nothing unusual there, really. Standard week, yeah. Uh, and, Carlos, um, what about you? What are you up to? No, actually, no, no. I'm going to ask Armando. Oh. <laughs> what are you doing next week? <laughs> well, guys, I, I just landed in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Now begins the, the fire hose of information and training. And uh, so... There's a lot of that, and then hopefully I get to fly the airplane uh, back to North Carolina at the end of the week. Ooh. 
Ooh, we'll get you. Nice to see you, Armando. Nice to see you. Thanks for uh, popping in. Great show, guys. I was yeah. uh, I was laughing out loud, of course, when you have earbuds in and everybody sees you laughing. Then uh, they probably <laughs> just think you're you're mad. But yeah, crazy what you, man. What are you going to do crazy. about it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Great interviews today. Really enjoyed having KC on. Uh, I wish I could have asked him plenty of questions myself, but uh, really, really awesome interview. Good job, guys. Uh, I shall be trucking, the usual thing. Right, trucking, yeah, trucking. no change there. And a quick, before we move on, a quick thanks to John Airskins for sending over this uh, Airbus A319. And you all should know the airline because it's uh, from a country I love to go to. Never heard of it. And uh, this is one of their retired A319s, Air Malta's. And uh, there's a little tag there as well, part of the aircraft. So thanks to John at Airskins for that. Very kind of you. But yes, uh, big thanks again to uh, Casey, our guest on the show this week. And also, don't forget, coming up um, on the show soon, on the 12th of March, we've got International Women's Day special. That's going to be episode 360 um of the show that's going to be a international women's day special we're going to have a, a well there's going to be an awesome show uh, me and nev and matt we're going to take a complete back seat and let the ladies uh, run the show which will be quite interesting and i can confirm Gemma has said she's going to take part oh has she oh right yes okay i know god help Brace us yourselves yes okay uh, uh, social Social media links. Wait a minute. Uh, so you said that you, Nev, and Matt are taking a bad seat. Does that mean that I get to hang out with the ladies for two and a half hours? No, you, t- okay. no, you can't. Back seat yeah. for you as well, Armando. Back seat for you. Oh. <laughs> right then. <laughs> Social media links. Don't forget, if you want to check us out, the crew out, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Search all the social medias for Plain Talking UK. The WhatsApp number to get your picture on the screen behind Matt in the studio or behind me and behind Nev when he gets his green screen set up. Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Email us at the show podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Check out the website, all of W's plaintalkinguk.com. Also on the website, you've got the links there to our Amazon page. If you do your shopping on there, which I have this week, Matt, and you can also find the links to our Patreon if you want to become a patron of the show and help uh, move the things along with the show and a PayPal link as well if you want to donate the old-fashioned way. We'd love you to do that as well. Quick reminder for everyone, Casey, our guest who is on tonight's show, absolutely awesome guest. Uh, You can check out his blog, uh, caseythepilot.com. That's kilocharliethepilot.com. And his book is also on Amazon as well if you look on there for his book. And also his YouTube page, uh, you can check that out uh, over on YouTube. Just look out Casey the Pilot on YouTube. So there we go. That's all the social media links that you need. Indeed. That's it. That's where we need to bring everything to a close. Uh, say goodbye, Nev. Yeah, cheers, folks. Thanks very much, Steve, for tuning in. See you next week. Uh, say goodbye, Armando. Goodbye, Armando. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. See you, everybody. <laughs> And say goodbye, Carlos. Yeah, and from me, have a great, safe weekend, everyone. Take care. See you next week.